Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella. How are you, Sasha? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good. It's a hot day in Ireland and the, the country's having a nervous breakdown. Oh, <laughs> everybody's no. Walk, everybody's walked along on the heat. The heat. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Arizona, we're very used to the heat and it's actually starting to cool down. So I'm having the opposite experience. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. And actually, ironically, your weather's probably a, a good deal hotter than ours. We, yeah, we, it's, yeah, we it's think we're relative. in the desert. We think we're in the <laughs> desert when it's about 27 or 28. What is that? Something like, <laughs> something like, uh, like in the 80s, is. I think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> what else is going on? Of course, we have a, a special day today. Yes! We're recording on a special day. It's a very special day. Um, today is the day that our lovely book got launched in the UK which is yes. extraordinary. Lisa Marciano, our lovely co-author, wrote a very, very moving tweet thread about yeah. our friendship and about us coming together and how she first met us. I teared up like it was Me beautiful. Too. It was yeah. beautiful. It's yeah, amazing because it was, it was a while it. ago. I mean, we met in 2017. And I mean, what we see now is like, all the media and all the journalists are starting to talk about this issue of the quote yeah. trans kid. And we've been deep in the weeds with this since pretty early on. So reading Lisa's tweet thread about, you know, the first time I contacted her, yeah. I had heard her talking on a podcast. She was the first person I ever heard talking about the explosion of trans identified kids and then oh we, wait wait a second and did you pause or did you go I have to contact this person in the what middle way? of the interview I stopped <laughs> it and I was at work I was working in a middle school at the time and I emailed her in the middle of the interview I didn't even bother finishing it and I just said oh my gosh I've been following this too I can't believe what's happening do you want to talk and within <laughs> a day we were on the phone talking we started just talking regularly and then she talked about meeting you you were already well known with your film and you had been a mover and shaker in Ireland and in the UK and like uh, we all knew who you were so to connect together and then I, I, obviously can I just develop, say yeah my my image of you two was like you were the clever one <laughs> and, uh, I was really like as, you know, because Lisa said she was starstruck meeting me and uh, like that's laughable because I was so intimidated by the two years. And when I'm really impressed with people, I tend to slightly avoid them. So she <laughs> sent me a lovely email and rather than being a normal person and going towards her, I'm like, I hold back. <laughs> and I wouldn't mind, but I'm really friendly otherwise. <laughs> but if I really, really like you, I'll probably back off a bit. <laughs> oh, Stella, I can imagine you as a child very much now as you say that. But but our book, our book that we yeah. wrote together is called When Kids Say They're Trans. And yeah. this is a guide for thoughtful parents in the UK. And essentially, this is a guidebook for parents 
who want their children to thrive, who love their child, they want to be supportive, but they actually don't think socially and medically transitioning their child is the best way to really help the child with their, their real problems. So this book um, offers all the information that a parent may need to know about what is the current research? What do we know and not know about these gender transitions? Why are kids suddenly announcing a trans identity? What is ROGD? So it gives parents the info they need to know to make an informed decision, but also helps them with some of the delicate, complicated, practical things they need to do. They need to navigate conversations with extended relatives, with the kid's school, how to actually manage conflict with the child, how to care for themselves. So there's a lot of um, information, but also practical strategy to help parents, you know, feel more confident and capable in, of dealing with this because a lot of parents are described that they feel totally lost. Like they don't feel right about affirming, but they don't know exactly what to do. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier, just before we kind of started recording that the parents out there who are right now, I just feel for them that are right now trying to navigate gender, not understanding things, feeling like they're being rushed along scratching their head thinking this doesn't feel intuitively appropriate for my kid and I'd love in a way to 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 help them out to get that book to those parents I know those parents who listen and who know us and understand us and I, I I hope we get their support and certainly um um I hope they benefit from the book but those particular parents the ones who are lost in the wilderness and don't know that there are other options I'd love if, you know, for example, if, if the book is in bookshops today in the UK, wouldn't it be lovely to think of somebody just picking it up? Just to go, no, yeah. what, what would this be? And probably by the time this podcast is released, it'll be also out in the US because it's only about a four week difference yeah. between the two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I really hope it's helpful. It's, it's, it's remarkable to me, you know, sometimes we hear from parents who say, for the last two years, I've been struggling with this issue, and I didn't even know that there were therapists and psychologists and doctors offering a different perspective because everybody that I interacted with at my kid's you know, psych hospital or my kid's therapist's office or my kid's doctor, everybody was just using this kind of cookie cutter affirmation model that says you have to follow the child's declaration. You have to move on to the next step, which is get the haircut, get the binder, change the wardrobe. So yeah. some parents surprisingly don't even know that there's another perspective. And it's actually a perspective shared by a huge number of professionals, doctors. This is the most controversial area of psychology and of medicine. And yet, a lot of times you go to your therapist and you might get the impression that there's a complete consensus on what to do. And actually, that's not true at all. This is an incredibly yeah. hotly debated topic. And we see detransition stories coming out left and right. And we know that there's a real scandal going on here. So for parents who have been out there looking for an alternative perspective, we're so glad to hear that people are finding their way yeah. to Things like our podcast, our book, our membership groups, uh, your GenSpec's incredible organization. So we're glad that parents are finding these. And there's lots of other therapists who may not work with us directly who are also kind of sharing their concerns and, and presenting alternatives. So we're glad to see more and more resources oh, popping really up is. for parents. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, we're conventional. We're the conventional psychotherapists who, who offer a conventional psychotherapeutic process. It's it's the new kid in town is the affirmative approach. That is the new deviation. And it's never actually been done 
in psychology or psychotherapy before. I think people don't know that, but they do kind of say afterwards, it did feel very unpsychological, if you follow <laughs> me. It just it doesn't feel like that. But I want to point out that if, if, if we have any new listeners who, who might not know much about us, we have a Patreon and we do take questions if anybody wants to, you know, to add in their questions, because I know if I was a parent in this, I would have so many questions. I would I would I would I blitz the place with questions and we welcome that. We really do, because we want to be we want to be informative. We've learned so much in these years and it's an incredibly complex people simplifying this and believing that trans is the new gay. Has have missed multitudes about this yeah. complex condition. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in our listener community, we take parent questions, we do these weekly kind of Q&As. And also we have a, a new um, kind of series that we're doing called Dinner Party Conversations, where we ask our guests that are available for full episodes, we ask them, hey, in your real life, how do you talk to people about gender? Because a question you and I get a lot is, you know, um, at my school's, I'm on my school's PTA board. And I want to talk about gender, but I'm not sure how to bring it up. I'm nervous. I don't know the best way. Or, you know, we were having lunch with our neighbors and they're transitioning their child and they expect that we're affirming our child. So how do we yeah. bring this up? So this is actually a huge question. And you and I also are trying to figure out the best way to talk about these issues in our real lives with our friends and families and neighbors and so on. So that's been really interesting to explore. So for sure, if you're a parent and you have a question you'd like us to answer, please join our listener community community and submit it. We'll definitely get to it. And if you just want some more ideas of how to bring up these kinds of conversations in real life in ways that will go better than you might expect, you know, that's a great place to go. So yeah. we, we invite you to join us there in the Patreon listener community. Yeah, there's so much going on. There's so many resources. It's easy for people to feel um, a little bit overwhelmed. And hopefully our little book will be a nice kind of <laughs> Almost something to have beside your bed that will just kind of you can flick onto any chapter and start reading it if if, if you're worried or if you have concerns, hopefully, because I do yeah. hear. Do you ever get the, some messages and they say I was listening to you in the middle of the night or when I can't sleep, I listen to it. <laughs> and we should have this kind of go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do that right now. If it is three o'clock in the morning and you are turn supposed to be sleeping, to please sleep. turn us off. Grab a glass of chamomile or a cup of chamomile tea and unwind with a pleasant book, not with a book about gender. <laughs> okay, so today we wanted to talk about something that we feel is so important. It's actually shocking that we haven't done an episode on this much earlier. Oh, no. But, but we think that a lot of people, well-meaning people, believe that Affirming a child's gender identity is no different than affirming a child who says, I think I'm gay. And to be fair to people who believe this, it is absolutely a message that you might get from pretty much all media publications. If you look at the affirmative model of therapy, which we covered in a different episode, it's also based on the assumption that whatever a child's stated gender identity is operates in a similar way as a child's stated sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And um, 
This is even being used within a medical framework of medical confirmation or affirmation or gender affirmative surgery. So it's very interesting how this has been conflated. And so we wanted to spend some time today picking apart these two ideas of a kid being trans versus a kid being gay and why we tend to think that actually there are serious reasons not to conflate affirming these two declarations from a young person. And not to conflate the experience of being gay as a child and then growing up to become gay as such, that, that kind of awkward, mm-hmm. you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with the experience of, 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 of uh, gender dysphoria and seeking to meddle. These are two incredibly different experiences. I think I have come to think that there's a huge amount of sex within a gender identity. I I do think there is. So I can see why there is an overlapping. But that doesn't mean it's it's the same. They're very they're very different concepts. When you say I've come to see that there's there's a lot of sex overlapping. Yeah, I, I think I know what you mean. But say say more about that. Yeah. Um, I do believe that very often uh, there's there's sexual repression in a gender identity and gender identity identification that some people, especially maybe teenage girls, seem to be repressed sexually and they're, they're cloaking that with gender identity. And they really are. That, that, that's my experience of working mm-hmm. with, with young people. And then there's another type where it's a, 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 an erotic impulse that is happening that is um, effectively expressed within their gender identity. So again, two kind of sex reasons as such. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I say that with some discomfort because then I think of myself as a kid and like I was obviously three or four. And Tell, I tell your story. I mean, in case yeah. anybody is new here, this is really important because Stella, you've experienced profound and intense mm. gender dysphoria for years. So just tell yeah. a bit about your story. It's so funny. Little did I know all those years ago whether uh, that I'd be talking about it. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, when I was a very young kid from the age of three, like as far back as my memory went, I wanted to be a boy and it was very intense and it, it wasn't good. It was it was dysphoria. You know, there was you could see the distress in it. It wasn't a pleasant thing. It was a determination to be a boy. It was a kind of a, a strong feeling that I, I needed to convince everybody that I am a boy. And that it was kind of almost this magical thinking of the child that if I am boy enough, I will be a boy. Mm. Mm. And I just had to be enough boy. I, you, know, the, you know, when you're a kid, you're magical thinking, you know, you think if you don't step in the cracks, you're, you're, you're going to be, you know, you won't yeah. have to go to school that day. You know what I mean? We have That's explored. in our book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is actually. Yes. Um, yeah. So it, it, don't underestimate the magical thinking of a kid. And I thought I could almost convince everybody with the power of my intent that I would be a boy just by being so boyish. And I was very boyish. I was very good at being boyish. And I I often think that's kind of very interesting. What was it about me that made me so conventionally masculine? Why did I, Mm -hmm. why did I drive towards it? Why did I want it? Mm -hmm. Why was I so, why? And I look back and I was an inner misogynist. I hated girls. Mm. I thought they were really irritating. Really didn't like them. Uh, Girlish was a really derogatory insult for me. And so for many years, I experienced it. I was persistent, insistent. I was consistent. 
and um, I was powerful in it and I was well aware that I was impressing adults in my life and anybody older in my life and how intense I was about it. And I, I didn't miss that. I knew it was impressive. I knew they were testing me with questions and I saw that with I Am Jazz as well. You know what I mean? It's a kind of, they, they almost ask the question and then they're like, whoa, they really are into it. And I'm like, kids see through that. Like They know what they're doing. Mm. And it, you know, it's kind of easy. But um, then I went through puberty and puberty was awful. It was a terrible, terrible experience for me. Really, really unhappy. I was really, really uncomfortable. I was, I hated my body. I hated, I was, I was so animalistic about it. I wasn't even aware that this was puberty. I was saying it was just me, my body. Everything was going wrong for me. I just, it was awful. And yet I definitely, looking back, I hadn't realised that a sexual awakening begins effectively with non-sexual crushes. I, I, I've only really kind of figured that out recently. Forrest Gump here. <laughs> and so, like, I, I had these really intense crushes. And it's so interesting because, you know, Helena, she's a detransitioner. She and I clearly were maniacs in the way we fancied people. <laughs> no offence, mm-hmm. Helena, if you're mm-hmm. listening. But the two of us spoke <laughs> about it. And it was clear we were mad. Like yeah. when we fancied people, it was this extraordinary, extraordinary intensity. And it's like, in a way, that that extreme, intense um, obsession with other people eventually pulled me out of the gender dysphoria. I'm saying all this in hindsight. At the time, n- none of this was 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 obvious. Yeah. But um, over the years, I certainly pulled out of um, uh, having gender dysphoria. I left it behind. I I was ashamed and humiliated, very, very, very embarrassed because I realized nature was bigger than me. Puberty had made that clear. I needed to just get on with it and forget that entire decade because now it's embarrassing. So I had to do that, and then I had to, on some level, just. It's not that I became happy to be a girl. I just was a girl and I had to just get with the program. So a very different time. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately I came out of it. And then I became comfortable in my own skin and it never came back. Lots of people seem to, it continues. It's kind of there. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. completely left me. It never came back. No, no sign of it. Nothing. Yeah. And something I just want to touch on here, because, of course, I know your story well, and it was covered beautifully in the BBC film Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. So if anyone wants to watch that, we'll put that in the notes. But something that I think is very important here, especially if you are kind of new to the, the, the debate around childhood gender transition, is that a lot of times people look at, let's say, a typical, quote, rapid onset gender dysphoria kid with a history of being very gender conforming. Oh, you know, I hear all the time, she loved to play with Barbies and princess stuff and she wore pink and she refused to play with her brother and she all of a sudden in adolescence, just kind of after a long brooding period being online too much, she decided she was a boy. And parents will often say to me, you know, I'm I'm an accepting liberal person. If she had always felt like a boy, I'd be fine with, helping her transition. And whenever I hear people say that, of course, I think about you. And I think about the many listeners who have written to us saying, I would have been transed as a kid had I been a child today. They would have medicalized my gender distress and I would not have had a chance to grow up and become the person I am now. 
And the truth is we also have met tons of amazing transgender people who contact us and say, I also had a childhood history of dysphoria. And the important thing to know, and I think for me, this is the key reason why I don't treat a gender identity declaration the same as a sexuality declaration, is because none of us have the predictive power to know which is which. Yeah. And it's, none it's, of us know. Yeah. And there is no test. There is no way to know. It emerges. It emerges. And we don't know what is the... the what is going on in, in the person where they where they have this gender dysphoria and why do some of us desist and completely desist and why do some of us not? We haven't figured that out, but we haven't figured that out with a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. We we, we just don't know. I think I think that the stats one thing we do know is the stats would show us and the stats are, are limited. They're 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 small, but what we do it seems to be that a lot of boys who would be gender non-conforming as kids like me, you know what I mean? But the boy version of me very often grow up to be gay mm -hmm. and the girls sometimes do, you know, there is a, you know, they're more likely to be gay, but they don't, it's not quite as likely if they're a boy mm -hmm. and they're gender non-conforming, the, the, the likelihood of them being gay is really quite high. Yeah. It and seems. I think a, a lot of people don't really know that. I think a lot of people believe that a child will know who they are and they think, well, if a child might be gay, you know, they might be feminine as a kid, but they're not going to say, oh, I'm literally a girl, but actually they do. And gender dysphoria, the distressing condition of being convinced you're in the wrong body is actually a common part of some adult gay people's yeah. consolidation of their gender identity. So this is another way that it's so important to understand these things because when, when we look at, for example, what happened in the UK with the largest gender service in England uh, being you know, investigated and, and right. essentially being shut down and replaced with more local centers for support, a lot of clinicians there who were whistleblowers and resigned said, I think we're transing all the gay kids they, they made a joke I mean a dark joke of there are going to be no more gay people in the UK because we're transing all of them that's a remarkable thing to say so when people believe that affirming somebody's stated gender identity is the same thing as accepting them as a gay person they couldn't be further from the truth because sometimes it's precisely a struggle with one's sexuality which is creating gender dysphoria yeah and that's a complicated point, and it's a very, very, very relevant point that um, as so many gay people have said to me, people I've worked with and people I haven't worked with, or, you know, when I say worked with, I mean counseled, um, have said to me, my internal homophobe was my biggest challenge. Actually, my mother and father were all right. I didn't want to be gay. And I jumped through hoops trying to convince myself not to be gay because I just didn't want to. And I couldn't mm -hmm. even couldn't even tell you why, because I was very pro people being gay, but I didn't want to be gay myself. And I think that is underestimated. I think we thought that all we needed was our pride flags and our marches and that people would be cool about being gay. Something really quite resistant. Some people are to being gay. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many things 
that you bring up that I think are important. I mean, one type of story, if we were to kind of try to identify like archetypes, one story that I've noticed in a lot of trans people and detransitioners and kind of people who struggled with dysphoria is that they came from backgrounds which explicitly kind of demonized homosexuality. So to them, it was very clear that becoming gay would be the worst thing possible for me. And then through that kind of shame that was really internalized from the external world, the gender dysphoria developed and like, I'm not supposed to be having these feelings. I'll never be okay as a gay woman or a gay man. So like, there's that story. But then there's another story which you're describing, which is a person who actually has consciously liberal views People whose parents have even from a young age said, you know, honey, one day you'll grow up and get married to a man or a woman. We don't care who it is. Like, we'll love you no matter what. And even those kids, you know, have some complicated feelings about it. And and I believe that this is the nature of a sexual awakening. It's hard. It's complicated. It's filled with shame. You're turned on by somebody. You're afraid of rejection and all of these things. And when a young person is consolidating their orientation, If a girl, for example, has a crush on a female friend and gets rejected by her, whether in a nice way or a cruel way, that can be an incredibly shame-inducing experience. And I can imagine for boys, too, there are still boys who make homophobic jokes or who kind of macho alpha male types. And if he feels insecure about his attractions and his orientation, of course he might shy away from his own realization, even if he intellectually believes I support gay rights. You know, it's it's one thing to have an intellectual view on something and it's a different thing to embody it with grace and compassion, you know? Yeah. And I think our road to becoming a, a sexual being is difficult. Whether we're, we're gay or straight, it, it's, I don't think too many people have it easy. I, I, I don't think, it seems to be quite difficult and a lot of shame a lot of body loathing, a lot of um, the, the kind of unrequited love. I've talked quite a lot about this unrequited love that we get into. <laughs> and I got into very much <laughs> in adolescence. Mm. And I, I think we move. It's quite interesting. And that's one of the reasons I, I think puberty blockers are really not helpful in this, even whether they're going to transition in the future or not. Because I think having a sexual awakening means you move from being childlike, which is self-obsessed, to being other obsessed because you are having a sexual awakening and you think about other people you're targeting and also your your social skills well certainly mine improved (laughs) because i realized i had to make myself more um attractive to the world because i i fancied other people and i realized it doesn't really cut it walking around like a maniac furious with everybody (laughs) I i had to become nicer and i remember that that was a bit of a uh, uh, that was a big event for me, this realization of effectively becoming attractive to the other to the other sex or becoming attractive to other people. That doesn't happen if somebody doesn't have a sexual awakening. They arguably stay in the introspective, self-absorbed, childlike state. So a sexual awakening is bringing in an awful lot of things. But what Mm -hmm. it is also bringing in is all these crushes and unrequited love and an awful lot of pain and that existential, that big ache that an adolescent has for a mate, for another person. It's the beginning of the loneliness of being human, because up until then you are, you know, you're kind of part of your family, your mummy and daddy, 
that's mm-hmm. you and you're you're mm-hmm. on your own and you don't care that you're on your own because you have haven't had a sexual awakening then you have a sexual awakening and arguably you then are looking for your mate and for maybe 10 or 15 years there's a kind of loneliness to being a person yeah and then you meet somebody if you follow me and you're like oh we're, we're together you know what i mean and so th- those years there is a loneliness to being the adolescent and the person in their 20s Again, arguably, that won't happen if somebody has puberty blockers. But it all gets so muddied if that person that they're t- I'm talking about, if their loneliness is towards a same-sex attraction, but they think they're trans, they think they're trans, and they think that it, they've re- it's it they're putting complexity upon a complexity with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean. If a young person is trying to sort through their sexual feelings and their orientation, it's so important for them to stay grounded in reality. And I think, you know, Kathleen Stock wrote really beautifully about this in her book, Material Girls, about like, what are the different conceptions of what is a gender identity? Oh, yeah. And at one point she talked about how, you know, Sometimes a gender identity is something that society is willing to entertain to be polite, a kind of like suspend your disbelief fiction. Like if, you know, somebody is female and she identifies as a trans guy, we might call her he, him and pretend she's a guy. But if somebody is trying to figure out their sexuality and we affirm the gender identity it makes it actually very hard to sort through what's real and what's not. And what do my feelings mean about me and who I like and who I'm attracted to? And then conversely, and almost more importantly, who may be attracted to me? You know, if you're a young lesbian, essentially you want to be with other lesbians, young women who like women. So if you start transitioning in order to pursue relationships with straight women, you're in a way kind of denying reality for yourself to some degree and for the other person. Now, I want to be fair. I do think that in some cases this works absolutely fine. And I know trans men who are married to women and they have very happy relationships and there's no issue around that. But when someone is young and still full of shame and ambivalence about who they are, there is a real risk to going along with a gender identity that might be covering up their sexuality or might be coming from a place of internalized homophobia or for some of the kind of more ROGD profile of kids coming from a variety of other mental health conditions, body image issues, eating disorders, you know, really serious depression or, you know, all kinds of other things. So When we think about the implications of just agreeing with a child, you know, if a 15-year-old girl says, I think I'm a lesbian, and you say, okay, great, honey, no problem. That's a little bit different than when she says, I think I'm a boy. And then the whole family basically has to engage in this suspension of disbelief, this fiction, to say, oh, okay, well, we'll call you he, we'll stop saying that you're female, we'll change your name. We'll change your identity documents. We'll change your presentation to the world. And we're going to go along with this idea. There are much more serious implications for that kind of affirming a child compared to affirming a child who's in the process of sexuality exploration. Yeah, that's so so interesting. 
I think when you look at it, when, uh, let's say, when a child comes out as gay or when a child comes out as trans, their age matters. So if they're five and they say they're gay, you just smile along and say that's nice and you do absolutely nothing because you're kind of thinking, why are they saying it? <laughs> what is that all about? And you just yeah. think that's adult and strange and I, you know, it might be a red flag. It might be, it might be some sort of sexualized background, something. But or they heard surf- something on TV. I mean, five-year-olds are something. usually not yeah, making yes. declarations. Yeah. They might <laughs> no, say, the, the, mommy, one day I want to get married like you or I want to be a mommy yeah. like you. I mean, yeah. those things. But anyway, keep I going. Know, yeah. yeah. But well, whatever, whatever they do, the adult does very little, really. They might just think I need to check the background there. I might check mm. the context. I might need to change things. But ultimately, they don't say, you're gay. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, sail you into a new life where you could meet gay people. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They don't do anything like that. So if a child at five says that they are the opposite sex, in some places, in some schools, in some societies, in some families, it is quite quickly these days in this extraordinary climate we're in where there's such emphasis on gender identity, they could say, well, maybe you're trans. There's such a thing as a gender identity. Maybe you might want to change your name. Maybe you want to go to different um, toilets or changing rooms. Maybe you want, excuse me, to use a new pronoun. Mm-hmm. This has never happened before. And kids love power and will be often very, very attracted to the idea of change. And wow, and everybody dancing to my tune and stuff like that. So already the difference between a child saying it and a, 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 a saying they're trans or whether they're saying they're gay, that same kid comes out at 15 and says they're trans or they're gay. Again, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think there's a huge difference. So if, an ad, if a child said to me today, I was chatting with my, uh, my kids' kid, friends and they were telling me all sorts of things. And if one of them said they were gay, I'd go, that's nice. But I, I wouldn't talk about it. How it's old? Not a, they're 15. Okay. Yeah, I mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't get. Oh, let's talk about sex. You know, I mean, leave them to it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let them off. You know that way. And I wouldn't. I would. I would have that fairly open, neutral expression that any therapist will have, which is not shaming. It's not trying mm-hmm. to get all the crazy details. Mm-hmm. It's being open enough to let them say more if they want to. Not closing it down. Not opening it up. Just holding it. You know, this is down at the kitchen table before I came here. But um, if they said they were trans, like you said, there's an active participation is is required these days, which is names, the, the usual pronouns and things like that. And so the 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 massive difference in response between a declaration of being gay and a declaration of being trans hasn't been really um, penetrated. So many schools haven't realized this is a completely different scenarios and you really to think that this is the same as being gay is is laughable because the participation needed from a school if a yeah. child declares they're trans versus the non-event if a child declares they're gay mm-hmm. suggests how experientially different they are. But not only that, the other differences, now I'm on a rant, <laughs> And the mm-hmm. other differences between, you know, a child, anybody being gay, you know, a 74 year old or a 14 year old being gay is that it's empirical. You can actually test if somebody's gay if you wanted, insofar as there can be tests if you wanted. And they could put kind of um, monitors on your genitals and on your glands and stuff like that and show you pictures and 
you will react, you will physically respond, especially men, obviously, to sexually explicit pictures of the target of your affections. And um, there is no empirical test. There is no tests with with gender identity. It is your subjective reality and it's utterly and only your subjective reality. And there's no way of testing that experience that I had as a kid with anybody else's experience that they had as a kid. All we can do is talk about it and Mm -hmm. describe it. Mm -hmm. But there is no actual definitive test. And I find when I'm talking to so many people who are lovely, well-meaning, thoughtful, intelligent people, they just presume that being trans is as biological as being gay. They, they, they feel that it's, there's no difference. It's just it's a different experience, but it's as it's as fundamentally physical as being gay. And I'm like, but it isn't. One is psychological and the other is physical. Being gay is a physical response to other people. Being trans as such is a psychological response to how you are perceived in the world. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, GETA. GETA is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach. We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help. Visit GETA at genderexploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. You know, I think our listeners wouldn't say this, but I, I do think a lot about this argument that I've heard from people who do affirm gender identities. They say... Well, these same exact arguments were used about homosexuality oh, not yeah. so long ago. So yeah. people used to say, um, and I, I've met people who still think this, that being gay might be a trauma reaction, just in the yeah. same way that detransitioners are saying now, you know, my identity was a trauma reaction. Or being gay comes from the fact that, like, you haven't right, met the right guy yet or whatever. And so some people say, you know, oh, your yeah. gender identity will change when you just grow up and get a little more mature. So there, there is a way on the surface that these look like parallel arguments. And to be fair, I mean, when a kid says that they're gay, nobody is saying, well, let's hook up a bio uh feedback machine to your genitals and see if it's true <laughs> like hopefully and i am not right. advocating no no that. we're not advocating but but you're right i mean it's measurable but let's say let's just say none of this was measurable let's say yeah. that being gay was equally subjective okay i still land on this point that the consequences of affirming it are basically telling the person that reality isn't real, that actually they need medical interventions in a lot of cases, and 
that's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Even if, and, and I've, I've talked about this in one of my YouTube videos, let's say a person's experimenting or exploring their sexual orientation and they start out thinking that they're bisexual. And later on they think, actually, I think I'm just straight. And then later on they discover that they're gay or whatever. Oh, yeah. And they oh, yeah. have a relationship with a woman and then they sleep with a man and then they have another relationship with a man. No harm done, really. I mean, unless you have some sort of moral issue with that. But on a purely... Um, like biological, health, yeah. psychological, no harm done whatsoever. It's okay to figure those things out over time. But once we start medically intervening with a person's stated identity, you have just done something concrete and irreversible. Even if the person changes the way they see themselves later, there are definitely some aspects of medical interventions that cannot be undone. So the stakes are just much higher with the consequences of, quote, affirming something. And it's, it's extraordinary when you start thinking about it, because you think, well, if if it was true that there was all these trans kids in other generations and that they should have transitioned mm-hmm. and that they didn't because of uh, because they died by suicide or something, well, then the rates of suicide would have shot down if you follow me, in this yeah. new era. There would have been an extraordinary drop because this new cohort of kids that we had never figured out, figured out before, we'd never identified, we had never affirmed them, they would be seen in the mental health context as, as happier. And they, they haven't been seen. In fact, they're very, very distressed. They're often very, very distressed. So it's, it's a kind of an interesting kind of unsolved question about this is a new generation. An awful lot of people see, see it as technology has finally caught up enough for these trans kids and technology can finally give them what they need. Well, if that was the case, we would see it in other measures of mental health. And suicide would be the obvious one, but also other measures. We would see a whole cohort of children that are much, much happier because they accessed medication. And this is a really important point, and I want to kind of use your story as an example. And and as a caveat, we know that it's impossible to, in hindsight, go back and say, what would it have been like if this or that? But I just want to paint this picture for listeners. You know, people will see in the film, you looked like a boy. I mean, nobody who saw you would have thought you were a little girl. Mm -hmm. You were boyish. You fit in very comfortably in that role. But obviously people knew you were really a girl. And as you've described before, at some point you realized they were just kind of pulling your leg. They were going along with it to almost see what you do. But a horrible feeling that was. Yeah, that that must have been very. I'm I'm being pandered to. I take myself very seriously and they're all pandering to me. Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. But but if, if you had been told... Stella, what you are going through is happening because you're transgender and it's okay to be this way. And what we'll do is we'll make sure that when puberty comes, you don't have to deal with your breasts growth. We don't have to deal with periods. We're going to help you become a real boy just like you want. I mean, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. You would have taken that. You would have taken that. I would have taken it. And I would have thought it was the best thing ever. I would have thought I needed it. And I want to cry thinking of it because the vulnerability of that kid, because I would have been wide eyed thinking, 
I knew I was different. I knew this was something deep inside me because that's what it felt. But anybody who's had any sort of, I would argue, mental health issues would say it, they almost become it. it. It feels like it's part of you. Um, I, you know, in Hadley Freeman's book about anorexia, she was talking about how deeply you identified like I am anorexia. If you follow me, that's how deep it goes. So for me as that kid, I would have absolutely it would have been the great solution, the great mm. solution to my pain. And I, I, I now fear in hindsight, we can't know who knows, but we I now fear in hindsight it would have been a major wrong turning. Certainly for me, I ended up having children. I'm very, it's the most important part of my life is having children. And I, I feel it would have put me on a medicalized pathway without an ability to get off the medicalized pathway. Because mm -hmm. once you're on it, it's very, very, very hard to get off it. Because even if you, if you take puberty blockers and cross sex hormones, you have medicalized your body so the ability to go back to pre-medicalizing isn't there. So you, you don't know how you've shaped the situation. And, and you know, I, I don't want to. Like, it's so hard with all the unknowns, right? Yeah. It's possible. I, and I don't want to speak for you, but whenever we think about childhood transition. And this story, this cohesive narrative that is being woven through the parents, the schools, the therapists, the doctors, everybody's telling this story, which is you're a transgender person. You will have medicine. It will help you. You can become the boy you want to be. And if that is the story you have forever, and you also have the story, if we hadn't done this, the suicide narrative is used all the time to push parents towards medically transitioning their kids. If we hadn't done this, you might have been very sick. You would have been mentally ill. There are probably people who were transitioned as children that may never get out of that story yeah. loop and may genuinely feel as though this was good for me. And I don't want to undermine that experience because we all make sense of the world in the best way we can and there's no there's no reason to say that that's better or worse or right or wrong but the truth is when you intervene in a way that will medically shorten a lifespan will impact your sexual functioning your ability to connect intimately and sexually with your partner with yourself with your body when you take away someone's opportunity to parent their child, then it's not just simply a neutral, different choice that, that you can make for your kid. It's really serious. And that's never a question when a kid comes out as gay. That is not in the cards for a kid who's saying, I'm gay. And I've noticed that a lot of parents dismiss this point of view that we're putting forward today because they think, oh, no, 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 we're fine with them being gay and they're fine about being gay. So it couldn't be, this couldn't be a gay thing. They're identifying as trans because they must be in our trans. And they dismiss the concept of, well, a lot of us have, a lot of people have internalized homophobia and a lot of people have a slow sexual awakening. And I think that is underestimated. Lots of people, they, they don't know who they fancy at 14 and 15. They're they're, yeah. they're, I think that that kid has been really hypersexualized. And when kids hear about sex before they're sexual, it is 
creepy, icky, and it's horrible. And don't mm-hmm. forget, if you're an unblossomed kid, if you haven't had a sexual awakening, and everybody around you is talking sex, 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 you're in a horrible environment. It's a horrible yeah. position to be in. And if you also will one day be, sex, you know, same-sex attracted, I can just so see how they'd fall into feeling like they were trans because mm-hmm. they haven't had a sexual awakening and everybody's talking about sex all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, I, I, I don't I don't fancy anybody and I want to just be with my mates. Well, evidently, I'm I'm just trans and I just they're, they're mm-hmm. my girlfriends. If you follow mm-hmm. me, then I'm going to be mm-hmm. a boy and they're going to be my girlfriends. It's utterly platonic is how they're thinking it. So there mm-hmm. is the kind of non-sexual person who is identifying as trans because they are just they they haven't had a sexual awakening yet and I, often i find that they they're very hard to to kind of um to handle as a parent or as a therapist because nobody wants to make those kids talk about sex they don't want to talk about sex why yeah. would we talk about sex but it is it is an issue in a hypersexualized society and some of them like school is so hypersexualized sometimes you know yeah uh, absolutely. And I mean, if we were, you know, at the risk of being accused of deeply psychoanalyzing trans, which that's the whole point of our podcast. So like, that's what we do. <laughs> Guilty. Um, but but to be fair, like when I've met people from the affirmative model, they, they say, why are you denying people's identity? This is who people say they are. Why are you analyzing it? Like, that's not your yeah. job to tell people who they are. And you know what? I, I get that. I, I completely get that. But, you know, it's, um, if we, if we were to be curious about it, which is the whole point, and you talk about these kids who are actually pre-sexual, like they're late bloomers, you know, I was a late bloomer for sure. And I was so intimidated by my female friends and other kids I knew at school talking about sexual things with glee and excitement and I was Mm. just terrified like that's all I was Mm. when I was really young I'm remembering like sixth grade and seventh grade and you know these kids are escaping a very interesting aspect of development by identifying as trans they get to sidestep the entire sexuality question in a lot of ways because they are at war with their bodies you can't have a sexual feeling or a sexual experience when you're completely at war with your body. At least not always. I mean, I can imagine some scenarios where that could be true, but you know, it's like eating disorders are a desexualization of the oh, body. God, yeah. You oh, know? Yeah. So if you think about it from that curious perspective and you ask, you know, if we don't take trans as the new gay, right? What is happening here? What is this young person trying to avoid? What are they trying to speed up? What is the meaning of this? What could they be trying to accomplish through this identity? And there are so many complicated issues that it's really important not to treat it as though it's just the superficial thing, like as though we take it for granted and take take it at face value. Yeah, don't take it for granted because I think there's a, there's a very well-known... Um, pathway to to identifying as trans and that is initially coming out as gay and often that coming out as gay starts off very cool I'm gay I'm same-sex attracted it's fine and then there can be a real vulnerability because coming out as gay is something that um 
um, heterosexual people don't have to do, which is declare your sexuality. Ooh. It's very vulnerable. I would have hated it. Oh my God, I would have just shriveled up and died at the idea of it. And that is a, a rite of passage that gay people have to do that people who are heterosexual don't have to. They don't have to declare, I like. Imagine if everybody had to, at a 14 or 15, declare how they got turned on. <laughs> you know, how do you get turned on, Sasha? What turns you on? What actually turns you on? Just tell me exactly. Just give me a few mm, very definite it's details. It's so intimate. It's so private. Yeah. Yeah. And actually gay and, and, and bisexual people actually have to do that in a way that we mm-hmm. don't. We just go, I fancy him. We don't have to say anything about it. So the vulnerability of having to declare, throw it on the table so that everybody can think about it. We don't have to do that as as So we get away without ever having to declare what turns us on. And um, it seems that six months later, a few months later, having come out as gay, I often think it was too vulnerable, it was too intimate, it felt too um, exposing and now I'm coming out as trans and it looks like I was cool about being gay. It looks like, this is the, you know, the 14 year old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, 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 it, uh, ostensibly it was fine. And then when you work with them, me and you have worked with, with, with these kids, often you talk to them a little bit deeper and it wasn't so fine. It was actually very vulnerable making and people made a couple of remarks and actually fundamentally there was kind of a mortification about how exposed they were mm-hmm. and being trans felt much more protected as a, as a identity. I think people underestimate all of that is going on with the, there's a demeanor of it's cool. It's cool. I was gay, but now I'm trans. Yeah, it's cool. And I'm like, yeah, they yeah. that. You know, I talked about this a little bit with Katie Herzog, which I don't know when it's airing, but when I was kind of figuring out myself, I really predominantly started out only being attracted to girls. And then that evolved over time. So for me, there was a period where I was telling people that I knew that I only date women. I'm only interested in women. And what happened for me at the time was some people were fine with it, but a lot of people didn't take me seriously at all. Maybe because I'm very feminine Maybe because there were men that were like trying to, you know, interested in dating me. Like I wasn't taken seriously by a lot of people. And when I think about the experience of a lot of FTM trans identified girls, what's interesting about the trans identity is that you can do something to prove it. If you're a woman who's saying she's gay, other than like having a girlfriend, which people still won't take you seriously, how are you going to prove to anyone that this is real or that this is forever? Right. And in my case, it wasn't. I mean, I'm in a relationship with a man. I mean, I'm still pretty fluid in my attractions and orientations. But it's interesting because trans gives you a pathway to be taken seriously. So if you say, I'm not really a woman and people are like, yeah, whatever, you look like a girl and you're like, well, watch this. I'm going to take testosterone. Wow. I'm going to make my body completely different. I am going to chop off my breasts. So it's a way to kind of concretize and validate your statements at a period of time when, as you said, kids need to be taken seriously. Our identities, our explorations, our distress, we need to take it seriously. And if you can't get the world on board with you, prove it. Okay, I'll cut my breasts off. That is really interesting. Because 
you know, we talk a lot about um, gender identity as a way to individuate, as a way to separate from your parents. But I don't think you and I have given as much time to gender as a way to demand to be taken seriously. And just feeling that I, I'm, I haven't been really taken seriously enough by, by my parents, by my teachers. The, yes, they're taking my life seriously, but my thoughts, my, my, my beliefs, they're still being effectively patted and babied. And now you'll sit up. Now you're going to sit mm -hmm. up and listen. Mm -hmm. Because now I'm going, I'm looking for puberty blockers. I'm looking for testosterone. Now, suddenly you're taking me deadly serious. And I would feel... I th that really sings to me and my childhood experience. That really, really hits me because it yeah. was like. I'm here and I'm deadly serious and you're all going to appreciate it because look. You know what I mean? Yeah. Watch this. I have chills thinking about it. Watch this. Yeah. You didn't no. believe me. Oh, you're going to believe me now. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK. So this really begs a very important question, which we talk about a lot, especially with our work around parents, which, you know, through the Q&As and through like you have a sub stack and I have a membership group. But I think this is a really important question that we need to end this episode on. Okay. If we are saying we shouldn't literally affirm a trans identity because of all the reasons we've laid out. What is the right way to take a kid seriously? when they announce trans. How do we do that? I mean, I have some ideas, but we need to at least give listeners something That's true. concrete and here. I, I was asked, I was on the Spike podcast and he asked me kind of something similar. Mm. And I was like, because it's kind of like, well, it's the whole book. It's the book. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> and then I had to say, right, no, I have to kind of gather my thoughts a little bit better than that. But effectively, I think when we say you go quiet and you start listening very intently, it is a kind of a moment of reckoning of, OK, now that the world is tilted and um, now I'm listening. Mm -hmm. Now it's serious. Now I'm bringing everything. And that mm -hmm. kind of fake patty, oh, you'll be happy soon. You know, that kind of parent mm -hmm. sing something mm -hmm. that's gone out the window. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So if somebody is, and you know, it, it happened to me with my kid the other day, she came in and she was upset and I just immediately went into silly land of, oh, you'll be all right. And she kind of looked at me like she's going to kill me. And I was like, okay, whatever. Actually, I've got to take this seriously. I suppose you have to have, I'm kind of riffing here, but you kind of have to have the bravery to get down into the trenches with your child that they're in serious distress. And we resist it because we don't want to know that the kid is in such distress. We want it to yeah. be silly little kids, little problems. Yeah. And actually it's take this seriously. I'm in pain and I need people to hear it. And so how do we do that? I think is, is that we get into the trench with them. Which yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think parents have to really listen carefully, not so they can debate, but to really hear between the lines, to read between the lines. Yeah. If your daughter's saying, I just know I'm not a girl, there's a communication in that. Um, when you have seen around your school or in your friend group, the girls who are girls, what, what's different about them than you? Let's hear it. Because there's something, there's, there's either a specific circumstance or a series of events that have terrified her about being a girl. And if your son says, 
um, I, I hate my body hair. You know, you could go back and forth. Well, just last week, you didn't care about your body hair. But actually, he's saying something much more profound in a lot of cases. We know there's also a lot of binge watching and repeating things and scripted yeah. answers. But even Helena talked about this. I mean, she identifies as having been an ROGD kid. She recognizes her story. But at the core, there were serious, distressing, painful experiences that she was trying to make sense of. So it's important to go beneath the surface as much as you can and really listen with a compassionate ear. Uh, and I would definitely say certainly affirm the level, the depth of the distress. Certainly mm -hmm. affirm the seriousness of the of the situation, of the communication. It's not non-affirming. It's more affirming and continuing and going deeper. It's not just mm -hmm. end. You know, it's mm -hmm. very, very narrow minded or almost superficial and shallow to just affirm and think that's the end of it. It's yeah, yeah, I can see this is what you're feeling. Tell me more. Tell me more mm -hmm. because this is huge. Mm -hmm. And ideally, if the kid is talking, um, the more that you can kind of slow it down, slow the rhythm down. So it's a reflective conversation as opposed to that fast, choppy, political. You might as well be on a YouTube channel. You know, yeah. moving it away from that into a slower reflective. That can be really, really helpful. And for more in-depth suggestions, pick uh, up our book. book. <laughs> uh, but yeah. but but seriously, I mean, we we put a lot of energy into like some so glad sample dialogues and scripts. Yeah. And frankly, there's always more we could say. I mean, there's yeah. so many things we wish we had put in, but we do hope that it is a useful and deep and profound. Um, kind of guide for parents to trust their instincts. And it's just occurred to me that now I can change my email. I've kind of got a pro forma email, I'm sure you do, of, oh, sorry, you know, I, I haven't got places available, but I have blah, blah, blah. Now we can say, well, there's a book. There's a book oh, you can yeah. read and this will help you. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's, its own, it's its own kind of um, mascot for parents to have. To think yeah. I have a book that will, you know, just understand it's primarily a pro parent book and it's just to kind of explicitly help the parent to help kind of relationships with their kids. So hopefully yeah, that's right. That'll make a okay. difference. Well, we hope this was a good overview. This is a very important and interesting topic and yeah. we will uh, we'll sign off here, I guess. I reckon so. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 